Hi, D. Hi, D. Do you actually think that anyone will ever listen to this? Yes. Our moms. The darlings. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Do I have to record? And you... I'm already recording. Oh, oh. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. I'm oh, sorry. Wait, are you are you recording the the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> that's that was why a sneak we attack. Cl- <laughs> that's why we clapped. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Forensic Files Duo Podcast. I'm Drew, and I am a dancer all the way from New York City, and I am the bright age of 21. <laughs> Oh, are you now? Yes, I am. Okay. I've had four 21 birthdays. I'm Danielle. I also come from a performing background, but I focused more in the acting world. Also due to survival, I've worn many hats in the professional world. However, right now, the main focus for me is raising my babies. I'm married to a great guy, Blake, and we have two incredible kids at home, Oliver and Holland. The cutest kids yeah. ever. Danielle and I have actually been friends for 20 years. Shh, don't tell them. I know, it makes me feel very, very old. And we met in drama class in the ninth grade. Drew might be a professional dancer these days, but he is also a naturally gifted actor because at 14, he so convincingly told me he was related to the Reese Peanut Butter Cup family, and I proceeded to name drop that for months. I needed to make friends in high school because I was going from a Catholic school to a public school. Same. Like Katie Heron from Mean Girls. Like <laughs> I, That was me. Yeah. So that's why I had to come up with a story. But we really did click immediately. We both were entering a public school yep. from a Catholic school. Yep. And we both found out our parents are actually both named Mike and Darlene. It's so crazy. And your your mom's sister's yeah. first sister's name is Diane. Yeah. And, and they're all mom. D's, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Same. My mom's whole family, all D's. I don't even remember the moment that we figured that out. I don't know. It's just crazy. Yeah. So where we grew up in Michigan, there's a school organization called Forensics. When you join the Forensics team, you pick a category you want to compete in. And the most well-known category is debate. Most most people know debate club and things like that. We competed in the duo category. Yeah. Two people take a scene from a play or cut a short play down to fit the time requirements. And you actually can't look at each other, touch each other, or use props Outside of chairs or stools, which were always the most uncomfortable thing. Then you take it to competitions at other high schools and hope to win states, which we did. Well, technically we did not, but we should have. And I will forever die on that hill. I still think that we won. <laughs> Our forensics team, it really could not be more opposite of what forensic science is. The rules literally actively prevent any swapping of DNA of any kind. I actually looked up why the high school team is called forensics, and this is what I found from the Stanford National Forensics Institute. Stanford. Stanford. The word forensics comes from ancient Greece, where the term was applied to speeches made to convince a group of people who would make a judgment based on the arguments and evidence presented in the speech. The definition, speaking for judgment, still applies to the word today. Wait, so are you saying that our forensics was technically first? came before forensic science. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back. We were the OGs. <laughs> speaking for judgment talk about a full circle moment. We meet again as speaking for people to judge us. Well, if that's the case, we should get to the main event of the podcast. Now, I grew up watching Forensic Files. It is 100% responsible for my interest in true crime. My mom would iron whatever night there was a marathon And that's what we called binge watching with commercials, if there are any Gen Zs listening. So now I watch, listen, and read about true crime 
daily. My husband hates it, but you know how football players watch game tapes of the opposing team so they can anticipate and prepare to play against that team? My mom actually took me to a jazz class after I failed football so so <laughs> terribly. I scored a touchdown for the other team. Um, <laughs> I so badly didn't want to play sports that while attempting to play football, I also decided to fake asthma. And I called an inhaler a puffer. Little did I know my dad was like literally right next to me and he was like, You don't have asthma. You don't have asthma. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, my acting scene got squashed so fast because stupid me, what do you think? You know, while my dad was coaching football, my dad came over and literally ripped me off that field so fast. (laughs) He's like, I can't have this. Okay, well, I also have zero personal knowledge of football, but I've seen that in movies. And it's just how I think about listening to true crime podcasts or watching true crime documentaries. But instead of trying to like win a football game, I'm just trying to not get murdered. But that's not the case for you, right? Absolutely not. (laughs) I literally thought we were doing a podcast about recapping (laughs) X-Files. I'm definitely a true crime baby. I'm coming at this with... Complete fresh eyes, and I spend my worries on ghosts, demons, and wondering if my apartment is haunted. This is exactly why I think this duo will make for a very interesting (laughs) podcast. Since we're both coming from different places in our true crime knowledge, I just, I hope you have a little bit more space in there to have some new worries. I don't know. The ghost in my living room is pretty strong. She's taking up a lot of mental capacity, so, but I will try. My husband, Blake, he is very vocal about his feelings. Regarding my true crime interest, I mean, he hates how paranoid it makes me. After I learned about what frogging was, I made him check our attic more than once. What's frogging? What's frogging? It's when someone lives Frogger, in your home. Frogger, like the game. No, 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 no. Frogging is when someone lives in your home without you knowing it. Like in your attic, in your walls, basement, floorboards, etc. What? Yes. You mean to tell me that there can be people living... In my house right now and in the attic. Welcome to the world of true crime. If you wish to get off the ride at any time, please hit the red emergency eject button under your seat. Well, I'm freaking glad I made us drinks. (laughs) But why is it called frogging? I don't know, actually. I did not look that one up. I looked up what forensics means. Do you think frogging, frogger, like the game? I actually don't know. frogger. (laughs) Game, not frogging. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. But I do, I really like this drink. Now, you should talk about that recipe book. Yeah, so I had this brilliant idea. My grandpa, back in the 30s and 40s... I love how you're like, like, I had this brilliant idea. Yeah, own it. It is brilliant. Good, I mean, yes. it is kind of brilliant because my my grandpa owned a bar back in the 30s and 40s in Detroit. And so he cool. named it after my grandma and um, where they had their honeymoon. And uh, it's no longer there. But my parents grabbed his um, cocktail book. So like oh he has like... Gosh. What is like the little black book yeah. for names yeah. is him, his version for like cocktails and spirits. I love that. And none of these drinks, like I'm, I go through, I went through it. None of these drinks like are on any menu. So That's I so thought fun. it would be so fun to have a drink every single episode. And then we're just going to flip through my grandpa's yeah. old book. Are we going to share the recipe with everyone or are we going to keep yeah, it yeah, a secret? Yeah, yeah, okay, We'll cool. put that up on our Instagram. I love that. So tonight we're having the Flamingo Punch. Ooh, cheers. Mm -hmm. Cheers to Grandpa, and maybe his spirit will hang with us every time we make one of his drinks and record. Except just don't haunt us. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to be haunted. Because I got to worry about frogs now. (laughs) 
After we recap the episode, Danielle and I will talk about any updates, corrections, or interesting facts we might have learned while doing some of our own research. You will also find us highlighting some problematic moments that did not age well. Absolutely. Now, speaking of problematic, we should probably start your first true crime class. Well, I guess frogging spontaneously took your first true crime class virginity but (laughs) (laughs) class number two is going to be how the media covers true crime Mm. this has been problematic for hundreds of years we will see this as we progress the victim will often be a pretty white lady to no fault of the victim's own but um, rarely if ever is airtime in the media given to victims of minority or disenfranchised communities and it is still very much a problem so for thinking of this and the format of forensic files for a case to qualify for the show it needs to be fully investigated using forensic science to solve the case well since our system was literally designed to neglect anyone who is not a white christian cisgender male When it comes to Black, Indigenous, any people of color or other disenfranchised communities, resources are often withheld from them, resulting in missing and murdered victims never getting justice or their families never getting answers to, you know, what has happened to their loved one. That's so not right. So in an effort to use the public's overall interest in the show, Forensic Files, and leverage the power of digital media once the episode coverage is over... We will highlight two missing person cases, a case that's currently on the BIA's Missing and Murdered Indigenous People database, and another on the Black and Missing Foundation's website. We understand that we will be discussing a lot of sensitive topics, so although we may laugh at times, please remember that we are laughing at ourselves and ourselves only. We are not making light of what the victims and their families have gone through and may continue to be going through, and if any corrections come through afterwards, we will most certainly address them. With all that said... Let's kick it off. Okay. Today we are reviewing the very first episode of the very first season of Forensic Files. Oh my God. Oh my God. Please tell me you watched the right show. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I did watch the show, but I might forever honestly mix that up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got this up. Watch me shine. Episode one, The Disappearance of Helicrafts. The episode opens in a soft sepia filter. And I wrote down in my notes, work, 1996, color effects. <laughs> it's so dramatic. It is. I love it. We see a reenactment of Hella meeting a private investigator in an old station wagon in a parking lot. And the PI is showing Hella pictures that have a, you know, that 1980s mm-hmm. photo clarity. But regardless of how blurry the photos are, the PI confirms that Hella's husband is having an affair. And it's literally raining cats and dogs. But nonetheless, these reenactment actors are giving the performance of a lifetime. Like, they're acting. They're acting. And I think I might actually have the actress's jacket that she wore in the first scene. Like, I think I bought it in a thrift store in Reno. Honestly, you probably do. These reenactment actors have to make money somehow with how they get paid. Mm, Isn't that the truth? We do learn shortly after her meeting with the PI, Hella disappears. Then cue the intro with the voice of true crime, Peter Thomas, narrating the show. This is the story of how forensic science solved the puzzle. In the fall of 1986, Helicraft visits attorney Diane Anderson to discuss the possibility of a divorce from her husband, Diane explains that Hella was in a domestic violence situation, but she does it in the most 90s way possible. She says Hella was very concerned about um, potential violence, shall we say. She did say um, though. 
She did say, um... um she was also concerned um, about uh, potential violence, shall we say. Diane is literally giving me full Lorraine Warren paranormal investigator vibes. You know, you know Lorraine Warren. Yeah. Like, full up, hair's I done up, it. like, like yeah. the glasses, everything. I, I mean... I can provide you with a divorce. I can also provide you a seance, seize your home, or conjure up your dead relatives. Could I also introduce you to this doll, Annabelle? <laughs> I've been trying to sell her for years, but she just somehow makes her way back to us. I actually did more research on her because I was convinced she was younger than she allowed herself to dress. In the course of doing so, I learned some pretty badass stuff about her, but I'll talk about it at the end. For as much as we don't like how she describes what was clearly an abusive situation, we do have to remember that we are looking at this with 2023 eyes, you know? Right. So now we learn more about sweet Hella. She was a 39-year-old Danish flight attendant who was living and raising her babies in Newton, Connecticut. We see a family photo of Hella with a gentle smile and her arms around her children. Then cut to the husband, Richard, who looks miserable. Like, he can't even be bothered to smile for a family photo. And you know, like, taking a picture was, like, a yearly occurrence back then? Yeah. And remember remember when I <laughs> used to work at Glamour Oh, my God, yes. I totally forgot you worked at Glamour Shots. In case Shots. anyone didn't hear me, I said, I worked at Glamour Shots. <laughs> okay, okay. <clears throat> Take me through how you would coach Richard. How to take a glamour shot. I am Richard. You need to coach me and you need to tell everybody because this is not a visual format. <laughs> so you need to explain what you are doing. Okay, well, I'm wearing all black today. So that is very much the, the outfit that the we survive. were required to That's wear every day. Okay, we're, The uniform. Great. So I, I would first um, say, hi, Richard. Welcome to Glamour Shots. Are you so excited today for your photo shoot? Mm. Great. So over here, you can see that we have many um, different items that you can pull from, you know, to express your energy in you the had props. At we had props. Oh, my God. You just interrupted my just, scene. Sorry, I just broke the fourth wall. I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Props are not supposed to seem interested. <laughs> he doesn't. He's okay. a murderer. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. I'm so sorry. I broke character. So over here, we have a whole plethora of props and hats and stuff that to match your energy mm. and whatever you would like for this photo shoot. So let's get started. Are you ready to go, Richard? Mm. Great. I love that energy. Let's get started. And scene. I did not have that much energy every time, but <laughs> after I had my Cinnabon, I did. Have you had your Cinnabon? <laughs> Apparently, Hella suspected the affair and who he was having the affair with, but she did want confirmation. And that's when the private investigator, Keith Mayo, enters the chat. Okay, Keith says it was a typical scenario. Husband never home. Husband constantly lying. Was the bar really that low for men? It was a typical scenario of husband is never home, constantly lying about his whereabouts. And she had had enough. Hella is literally not having it. She is not Good. having it. Good. She gets her phone records, identifies one that she doesn't recognize, which leads Keith right to the other woman. And there's a confirmation. Literally. I mean, then Peter, the narrator, takes us back in time to learn about their marriage. And we see what I'm guessing is a, a photo from the start of their marriage, but they somehow look older. They do, don't they? I thought so, too. I had to go back like three different like, times. Is this the case of Benjamin Button? <laughs> Diane Anderson looks older. Oh my God, she does. Richard's smiling really threw me off this time. Oh my God, he is smiling. Yep. Right. 
Well, we learn that they met working for the airlines, Hella as a flight attendant for the iconic Pan Am and Richard as a pilot for Eastern Airlines. You're not going to talk about the photos forensic files used to show him at work? Okay. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> we will post these on our Instagram because although this isn't a visual format, oh. I need y'all to understand how difficult it is to find the words. Let me just say Dick looks completely trashed <laughs> with his arms out against the door as if he's holding himself up while the plane is going down. The plane he should be flying. Yes. And they also mentioned that he was a part-time police officer. Those are two different careers. Like two completely different yeah. I do have oh, more yeah, information yeah. on what was happening with his airline job at the time of the disappearance. You're a research queen. I know. I just, I go down these rabbit holes. I just have so many questions and the show does not answer all my questions. So I just research and then it takes a very long time. But And now I'm worried about frogs. <laughs> you have so much more to learn. This oh, is, God. Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, to absolutely no one's surprise, he is described as very cold. With a very purposeful zoom in on those dead eyes from the family photo earlier. I hate that photo. I know you do. Like, it, it, I have nightmares about it. And now I'm going to have nightmares about frogs. <laughs> I don't like this. This was a really bad thing for me to sign up for. Uh, I'm already paranoid about crossing a goddamn road, but now I'm going to be paranoid about frogs. Hella files for divorce and confides in her lawyer and friends on her flight crew that if anything happens to her... Don't think it was an accident. If anything ever happens to me, don't think it was an accident. It was an accident. And that's an unusual comment to get from a client. Diane just says this is an unusual comment to get from a client. Unusual comment. No shit, Diane. Why are you so calm? Hella is about to burn it down like Martina McBride on Independence Day. Someone get her and those kids out of there. What? What? Oh my God! Please no, tell me I've you've never seen, seen that. It. You have not seen I've that never music seen video. It. That oh, it's the song Independence Day. That music video just lives rent free in my mind. But anyways, we are not going to dance around what was really going on in their home because that only benefits the abuser. Richard Crafts abused Hella, and she was trying to escape the relationship, which is now proven to be the moment a victim is most at risk of being murdered by their abuser. And there, Drew, is your true crime class number three. Whoa. Whoa. We even see a typewritten letter to her mother describing how bad things were between them. Everyone does know what a typewriter is, right? I mean, like, I don't think I don't think the kids these days know that that was the way of yeah. writing your thoughts yeah. down sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Plunk, plunk, plunk. Plunk, plunk, plunk. (laughs) On November 18th, Hella is dropped off at home by her best friend after returning from a European assignment, and this is the last time she is recorded to be seen alive. Yep, and when days pass, she doesn't even return for her next assignment. Her friends, who are all on high alert, start calling her house, as I would do. Yeah, absolutely. And, And then Richard comes up with some story that she went to visit her sick mother in Denmark, but... That, of course, he changes it to she's on vacation with a friend. Yeah, and Hella's friends, they all start comparing the lies that Richard is telling them, and they realize nothing's adding up. That's when they contact Diane. Diane. Diane and the PI. Keith tried to report her missing, but, of course, the police say, sorry, no can do. You know it's a bad time in history when a lawyer and a PI can't even get the police to take a missing person's report seriously. But luckily, Keith decides he's going to do his own investigation. And this is when we find out they had live-in nanny money. That's a lot of money. 
a yeah. living nanny. I had to rewatch that part because I was like, who is this woman? Living nanny? Like, what is that rate? Okay. I know. The nanny talks to Keith and mentions a dark stain that she noticed on the carpet after Hella's disappearance. Please play this audio because the way she describes the stain was just like. In the inside of the bedroom door, it was a spot, a black spot. Yeah. How big would you say it was? Half a spray. How about that big? Yeah. Did it look like a stain? It looked like it was staying, but it hadn't been there before. At some point, the police got involved without telling us because they start collecting evidence from the house. The evidence includes new carpet, a large deep freezer missing from the garage, and wait for it, a receipt for a wood chipper rental. Jesus. It literally is all, all the things in a horror movie. Absolutely. Richard agrees to then take a polygraph test, and these... 90s special <laughs> effects have I know. the reenactment actor glowing like Patrick Swayze and Ghost. I saw something different. I saw <laughs> literally like Emily Binks. I think that's her <gasps> name from yeah. Hocus, Hocus Pocus, Pocus where she gets the life sucked out of her. Well, after he passes, the police think they have no leads. It is important to note that around this time in the 80s, polygraphs were in the midst of being debunked as admissible or reliable evidence. So it's unclear whether the detectives at the time really considered him cleared or not, just based on a past polygraph test. Connecticut police then call in their secret weapon, forensic expert Dr. Henry Lee. Okay, Drew. <laughs> True crime class number four. Whew, let me prepare for this. this I is have a lot. so many classes. Like this. Should this be- is a lot. This one's a lot, and I have to do this up front. Okay. Dr. Henry Lee at this time was the director of the Connecticut State Police Forensics Lab, but at the time of this recording, he's like freshly famous after his testimony in the 1995 O.J. Simpson trial. That's crazy. Yeah. And so that trial was for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson, his ex-wife, and Ron Goldman, who was simply just there trying to return a pair of glasses that she had left at a restaurant. Yeah. That case launched Lee into the spotlight, and he quickly became one of the world's most respected experts. I have been seeing this man in documentaries for years, so it was a bit of a shock to me here, like, to see right at the beginning of his journey in the spotlight. Um, However... Yeah, I have an update. (laughs) Yeah, we need to mention it right here because it makes a difference on what we discuss moving forward. Mm -hmm. This past July, July 2023, a federal court found that Henry Lee fabricated evidence in a 1989 case that sent two teens to prison for 30 years for a crime they did not commit. Wait, I did not know that. Yeah. What? Yeah, so we're going to take a quick detour. And for anyone else like Drew that isn't familiar with what happened here, um, I got this information from APNews.com and CTPublic.org. When Ralph Birch and Sean Henning were put on trial in 1989, jurors heard about an extremely bloody crime scene. The victim, 65-year-old Everett Carr, had been stabbed 27 times, had his throat cut, and suffered seven blows to the head. Yikes. However, there was no forensics evidence. Uh, however, there was no forensic evidence linking Birch and Henning to the crime. No blood was found on their clothes or in their car. The crime mm. scene included hairs and more than forty fingerprints, but none of them matched the two men. And they still got yeah. So listen, prosecutors presented evidence from Lee. And Lee even testified that it was possible for the defendants to avoid getting much blood on them. And most importantly, that there were stains consistent with blood on a towel found in the victim's home. 
This towel was later suggested to have been touched by the killers while cleaning up. I didn't see exactly how that was presented in, mm-hmm. in my research, but apparently that's kind of the link there. Um, but then tests after the trial showed that th- that substance was not blood. What? Yeah, so Henry Lee was not famous at this time. So for more context, this trial was in 1989. And the testimony he gave at the OJ trial that made him famous doesn't happen for another six years. But his testimony against Birch and Henning happened about three years after Hella. Oh. Yeah, after Hella's disappearance. I take back that applaud that I gave him. I'm so sorry. <laughs> now, look, I have my own opinions about him in regards to what he is motivated by when he's participating in a documentary. But I would have never, ever thought he'd be found guilty of like fabricating evidence that's huge yeah and now his work in several other cases is now under scrutiny he is quoted saying in my 57 year career i have investigated over 8,000 cases and never ever was accused of any wrongdoing or for testifying intentionally wrong and i have no motive nor reason to fabricate evidence my chemical testing of the towel played no direct role in implicating Mr. Birch or Mr. Henning or anyone else as suspects in the crime. Further, my scientific testimony at their trial included exculpatory evidence such as a negative finding of blood on their clothing that served to exonerate them. Now that contradicts what we know about the trial and how the prosecutors you know, used Yeah, it's like exactly the opposite of what he was there for and what he was there to do. And he most definitely was a prosecutor's witness to convict these two, um, well, I guess they were teens at the time. Now, Connecticut's attorney general has agreed to a $25.2 million settlement for both Birch and Henning for the 30 years they spent in prison. Henry Lee, he's now 84 and an honorary professor at the University of New Haven's Henry C. Lee College. He's working for himself. (laughs) I know, I know. What? Um, he's like an honorary member of his own college. <laughs> <laughs> or did they just... <laughs> I don't know. That's unclear. I'd I, like to work at your own building yeah, named I, after you. I think, yeah. So I don't know. That's It's probably named after him, oh, you know, for other reasons. And it's not his, but it just seems a little self-indulgent. Seems a little yeah. self-indulgent. Yeah. I mean, okay, that was a lot of information. Yeah, I know. Just take it. It has my head turning a little bit. Yeah, I know. Just take it into consideration while we move forward. And we're going to have to see this man a lot. I know. I know. But, you know, we should definitely move forward. Lee accompanies the police to search the Crafts' home, and he finds five itty-bitty bloodstains that you could barely see. Peter tells us that in his soft, comforting voice about a solution that is very... (laughs) Hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to do it. Okay, I'll try this one. He uses an orthotolidine solution on the mattress fibers, and when the solution turns blue, it confirms that it is blood. You might as well have just said supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> Peter then just runs through this process like he's listing the ingredients of a goddamn pie. He runs a species test. It's human. He runs an antigen test. It's so positive like Hellas. He does a microscopic analysis. It's circulation blood, not menstruation blood, in case you were wondering. <laughs> Can science tell the difference between your blood like that, though? Wild, right? I love this next shot of him with a magnifying glass the size of his head. And then Peter's like... Dr. Lee studied the angle and intensity of the blood's impact. He concluded the blood hit the mattress at an angle of 10 degrees, meaning it came from an individual leaning over the bed or kneeling. The blood was moving through the air at medium velocity, consistent with an injury caused by a blunt object. 
we see a 90s computer-generated reenactment of a woman who is down on her knees, falling forward, her head rubbing against the mattress, explaining the blood smear found on this exact mattress. Okay. Sorry to derail again. Okay, but I will save the main parts of this for the end, but bloodstain pattern analysis like this is also under some scrutiny. Um, But I am not a scientist, so I have nothing else to provide other than that. Take that information and let your brain do with it what it wants. And what it wants to do is let me know (laughs) that nothing is accurate anymore. Because like now knowing about Henry Lee and the towel from the 1989 case, did you see what he tests next? (gasps) It's literally the same thing. You're right. Oh my Just God, the call towels. me Sherlock Holmes <laughs> because I put those two and two together. When you were telling me this, uh, telling this earlier, I was like, this seems yeah. very familiar. That ortho, what is Orthotalidine solution is back and shows that the towels have been soaked with what we know is blood. Or have they? But these looked covered in blue. Silly Richard for thinking he could just wash the towels and not think that they were going to throw that blue dye on it. And bam, all the blood (laughs) on those dirty towels. I did get a chuckle a little bit about how Henry Lee describes the next issue. The next issue, of course, a human body cannot just vanish in the air. A body has to be someplace. So there's no body, no murder weapon, and no witnesses. But this is when the story just gets out of control. A snowplow driver comes forward and tells police he saw a wood chipper on the bridge at 3.30 in the morning. Not only does Richard have a whole ass wood chipper (laughs) on a bridge. Like he wouldn't get seen. He's wearing an orange poncho. Oh my god. Is he legitimately worried about getting hit by a car while he's... What they're implying is disposing. Can't say it yet. You can't say it. I know, you but can. they are continuously <clears throat> implying and leading us down the road, down the bridge, <laughs> that he's disposing of his wife's body in an orange poncho through a wood chipper into a river. The amount of times I yelled at the screens saying, just say it. At some point, he must have thought, though, that the bridge was a bit too dicey because he moved his process to another road, and the snowplow driver sees him again. That snowplow driver is just trying to mind his own goddamn business. I would not want to be involved in this, but thank God he saw him. Police also discovered a mound of wood chips, and mixed in was a letter addressed to Hella. But when they took a closer look, they found a piece of an envelope. It was mailed. Addressed to Miss Hella L. Crafts. So now they have a direct link from this location to Hella and a wood chipper. And the wood chipper can be directly linked to Richard because they found that rental receipt. I mean, this would have just been like a moment. I'm like, all right, let's close up the case. Right, close wrap it up. up. the case. <laughs> wrap it up. Close it up. Let's wrap it up. He's guilty. <laughs> There's a letter with, uh, with Hella's name on it. Well... We do need a little oh, bit more God. than that. And then the detective said they found a lot of hair. Until we started finding a lot of a lot of hair, that was when I remarked to my boss, you know, I said, you know, if he did what I think he did, it's time for me to retire. So the next evidence they talk about is fiber evidence. And I find this so fascinating. It's such a nerd moment mm, for me. That's so cute. <laughs> fiber evidence. That's so cute. <laughs> So they find blue fibers, a gray piece of metal, tiny bone fragments, a painted fingernail, and pieces of a chainsaw with the serial number scratched off. Another moment I'd be like, 
Let's wrap it up. Let's go. Guilty, guilty, guilty. (sighs) Eventually, the news picks up on the story, and Richard is doubling down on the fact that he passed that stupid lie detector test, which, how can someone pass... That is something I, I don't think about understand. All the time. I, I think because you hear all the time that like psychopaths pass these lie detector tests. I have no idea how they even work though, really. I never want to be in that position. It is a fear of mine to like end up in jail, falsely accused of something. Like it is terrifying. And they still do them? They do. I think they do still do them, but they are not admissible in court. It's more of like an interrogation. And they should not be admissible with Richard. No, and it's not. But um it's it's an interrogation technique. Mm, like yeah. waterboarding. <laughs> that is not legal. That is that is not legal. Did you just bounce your head back and forth like eh? Depends on the case. <laughs> okay, I, I am pretty sure a lot of people will not like that opinion. <laughs> He's fully joking. Depends on who you ask. <laughs> Ted Bundy, sure. <laughs> we know he's guilty Uh, just waterboard him waterboard him (laughs) give him some hydration (laughs) all right so this chief medical examiner we meet he Mm, lordy lordy these characters that are oh he looks like he is either a whole case of beer into his night or desperately needs a nap who put this man in charge and who put him on camera i mean he looks hella no pun intended high because I can't understand at all what the forensic team needs from him. And it's just like, are you with us? Do you know that you're on a very important case that should have been solved weeks ago because all of the evidence was there? But let's get your opinion and go really slow, okay? They need either that piece of paper from me that says somebody's dead or occasionally a huge pile of evidence to convince them. Well, what they talk about is that without a body, it's very hard to charge someone for murder. And that's actually what makes this case a big deal. Spoiler alert, it becomes the first murder conviction in Connecticut without having the victim's body. Yeah, on the chainsaw was human hair, human tissue, and a minute piece of Danielle's favorite thing, fiber. Fiber. This blue fiber matches the color of Hella's favorite nightshirt, and the nightshirt fibers match the fibers found at the river. How many more things do we need to know? We are just connecting the dots. So then they do some science stuff to recover the scratched off serial number on the chainsaw. I am not going into detail I'm on this I'm pretty one. sure you did your research on that science stuff that you just tried to play that off. No, I didn't. I actually I'm did it. I was so burnt out. I was just like, <laughs> this, this woman was talking in all these different steps and I was just like, basically I get it. Okay, we get, we get the code. We're we going to rewind to this moment because I guarantee you in about two minutes you're going to be like, I just did some research. <laughs> You love my research. (laughs) Yeah, it is mind-blowing. By using a particular chemical solution, that will eat away the upper layers of the metal that have been altered by the water or by some physical attempts to alter the serial number. Um, The science stuff works, and after Peter reads off the entire number, like this was worse than bingo. Five, nine, two, one, six, one six. It was like ASMR for numbers. Oh, it was. Yeah. And he tells us it's, what do you guys think? A match to Richard B. Kreft's warranty card. And we got him. We Almost. got him. We got Almost. him. Almost. No, no. Listen, listen. Where's the gavel? <laughs> oh. Guilty. <laughs> I would just be running around saying, you, guilty. You are never going to be a juror. <laughs> Maybe that's a good yeah. thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's why I haven't gotten my, what is it called? Your um, jury duty. Jury duty. Jury duty. 
I want to go. Yeah, I want to well, be involved. They're, they're I like, want to give, give me the blue dye. <laughs> Test the blue dye. Yeah, but Test they're the like, do you listen to true crime? Sir, I do a true crime podcast. And, and like, I thought it was X-Files. <laughs> they're like, we can keep them. <laughs> Keep him. All right, so we are told these poor people in the lab examined oh every Lord. single piece of hair recovered, every 2,660 strands under a microscope, and what they show us is a very old school microscope. Oh my God, and then some random woman's voice says, A lot of the hairs had been cut, but not cut with a scissors. A lot of hair was cut, but not with scissors. No! <laughs> What was the, what were people doing in the 90s? Was it like, let's see if we can act like we just don't care? Well, after they all developed scoliosis from looking into a microscope for hours, they conclude that the hairs are microscopically similar to the hair they examined from Hella's hairbrush. Man, these poor people before DNA testing, looking at the investigation and the tools they had at their disposal in 1986... I mean, no wonder why so many serial killers at that time were never caught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, but another fun fact. Oh, there we go. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Rewind the tapes. Rewind the tapes. I called this. 1986 is also the year that DNA was first introduced as evidence in the United States criminal court system. Whoa. We are not going to talk about that case, but you can do that research on your own. But just No one's going to, I don't think. Oh, I bet you. I bet you. Actually, I know nothing about true crime, so... I bet you there are people listening to this, if we get anyone to listen to us, that are like screaming what case it is. I was screaming at the OJ one, because that was crazy. Yeah, yeah. I did look up the case that it was, but I'm not going to spend more time talking about it. Well, let's talk about the nail, because they found the, the nail at the river that had some red nail polish on it, so a chemist compares the polish to the nail polish found in Hell's Nightstand, and guess what, everyone? It's a match! Another piece of evidence that literally is pointing guilty. Mm -hmm. So today they would just try to get the DNA from the nail, right? Yeah, they probably would have just scraped it for her DNA instead of doing the whole... Paint test. Yeah, they wouldn't have done that. Take me to Home Depot and test the color of the paint. (laughs) I mean, unless there was no DNA on it. It is interesting how much DNA has completely changed almost every aspect of a criminal investigation. So like the technology we have today is really the only way I'm able to sleep at night. Like between house alarms, cameras, <laughs> baby monitors. How did anyone not just spontaneously combust from anxiety before these things? Well, maybe they were only worried about ghosts and demons <laughs> like I was before we started this podcast. I'm really missing those days already. <laughs> do we need a safe word? Yeah. <laughs> I think we do. And I think it's called orthotolidine. Orthotolidine sounds like <laughs> orthotolidine. <laughs> Someone get orthotolidine. <laughs> So even after all of this evidence points to Hella, it didn't prove that she was dead. And that's why we meet Albert, the biological anthropologist who is brought in to identify the bone. Did I just kill that? You killed it! Oh my god, I literally just said that with confidence. Like, I am a professor. Yes! For biological anthropology. He is brought in to identify the actual bone, though. We are 15 minutes into this 22-minute episode, and finally Peter is straight with us and tells us that Dr. Lee suspects Richard put Hella's body into the wood chipper. Don't worry, Peter. We figured as much since you mentioned finding the rental receipt. Yeah. Oh, God. And then we see the actual (gasps) footage of them recreating this with a pig. Since their, like, skin and bones are similar to humans. Mm -hmm. This is incredibly disturbing, and I was really not expecting this, and I felt very uncomfortable, and I had to look away. 
they feel uncomfortable talking about on domestic <laughs> violence. I know. But showing us a pig going through a wood chipper is perfectly fine. Piglet. Okay, it was not a piglet. It was a big ass pig. It was a really it big was pig. Really Something big. you would have like at a pig roast in Hawaii. It was pig. It was pig. It was pig. <laughs> this is not Drew the first time. I have seen Henry Lee recreate something using a pig. I have what? seen him do reenactment, like reenactment murder scenes using pigs. Like, what does he have against the pigs? It's because of their skin comparison to humans. So, like, he wants to know how hard this murder weapon can impact a mm. pig's skin to show the imp- compare it to the humans' impact marks. I don't know. Something seems. He has a thing against pigs. <laughs> Maybe he's vegetarian. Wait. No. <laughs> Don't include that part. I need to. Cut, cut, cut. Don't include that part, please. It was cold. Well, the test wasn't for nothing because they discovered that the wood chipper produced a type of cut that matched the same cutting pattern on the debris found at the river and also on those bone fragments. Dr. Lee noticed that the chipper produced a unique signature type of cut, one that matched the cutting pattern on the debris found at the river. Our very tired MD is back to explain that due to the damage to her bones, they don't know if she was dead before she went through the wood chipper, but she definitely was afterwards based on the bones that were identified. And now they have to prove these are her bones. So now we know a human being is dead. The next question is, who? Now, remember, this is right at the time that DNA testing was becoming a thing. So it isn't widely available. Right, right. But if Henry Lee is already the bigwig of forensic science industry, I'd imagine he'd be one of the first to get his hands on this type of testing, right? Well, not yet, because what comes next, it honestly seems like caveman science. This all seems like caveman science. Yeah, when we're looking at it with 2023 eyes, it, it looks like so much extra steps now that we just have that technology. But we meet Dr. Harper and go through his process. He freezes bone fragments with liquid nitrogen. He takes a hammer. He grinds them to a fine powder. And through some magic I do not understand. Tests reveal the bones come from an individual with O-positive blood. And Hella has O-positive blood. Good enough? Good enough for 1986, I guess. We quickly move on to the gray piece of metal randomly mentioned earlier. They think it's a crown to a tooth. Because back then, there weren't white fillings. Well, that suspected crown isn't enough to identify Hella, so Dr. Lee sends poor old Gus, the forensic odontologist, back to the river. But he doesn't only send him back to the river. Like, he sends this poor guy to the river for five days. What did Gus do wrong? Gus is like, I just, I became a dentist to stay inside and not outside for five days. Oh, for sure, because the way Gus lights up while he's talking about this adventure. I'd been at the crime scene for maybe eight hours. I slipped and fell into the brook, and I had a pail, and I was picking evidence up, and I cleaned my hand off in this pail that I was collecting evidence in. When I came into the tent, I put all the contents of the pail down. I washed my hand, and I looked down, and there was the tooth. Is it just me, or is the way in which Gus finds Hella's tooth sound a bit suspicious? Yes, yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah. for Gus's sake, I'm going to let him have this I one. I mean, the poor guy was literally in the woods for five days. I know. I'll let so him have, have it. Him it's a miracle they found it. Gus is the tooth fairy. I mean, he was yes. able to match her tooth to the, her dental x-rays, wow. and that was the final match they needed in order to pronounce Hella is actually deceased. Our possibly intoxicated medical examiner comes back to say... 
and they say, Helicraft's teeth are in this pile. And they were knocked out of her head violently. And we have a human head going through violent injury in the same pile. So we said, that means Helicraft is dead. Period. He's passionate and now. And then he drops the word, period. 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 <laughs> I was proud of him. All right, then Peter just wraps it up real quick. Like, Richard Kraft's guilty verdict took place the next day, and he was just put away for life. I mean, are you ready for the theory wrap-up? Should we just do it? I'm ready. I think that we should do it. Let's mm. do it. What happened to Hella Crafts? Based on the forensic evidence, a reasonable scenario can be pieced together. Hella is dropped off by her friend around 7 p.m. She puts the kids to bed around 8 p.m. The nanny had the night off. Nanny wasn't expected back home until midnight. Hella puts on her favorite blue night shirt. This explains the blue fibers. She looks through her mail. She stuffs a basic piece of mail into her nightgown. Like one always does. This explains the piece of mail found in the debris. She begins changing sheets. She's rage cleaning around a man who abuses her. Not a chance. But this explains a tiny bloodstain pattern being on the mattress and not on the sheets. Richard's violence against Hella is most likely what caused the sheets to rip off the bed. But no. We can't let women at home learn about the violence happening to them at home. They might take over. Reenactment Richard is now arguing from chair in the corner of the room. Reenactment Hella is yelling, why don't you just get out? Reenactment Richard says, no, you get out. Reenactment Hella says, no, you get out. Production decides, let's show a fake fight. Because real abusive relationship would be too uncomfy. Richard grabs a police flashlight. He hits Hella multiple times over the head. And now we see the details of the murder. And the way he gets rid of her body. Now I'm actually uncomfy. It is totally unnecessary and problematic. They will play out all these scenes but not give light to any domestic violence. It doesn't make sense. I think we're done with this episode. I agree. Do you want to start with any updates or extra info you found? Yes, because I actually did research, Danielle. Thank you, thank you. I found this little fun fact on Wikipedia. I don't know if you know it or not, but... um, (laughs) And if you have the special edition of the 1996 film Fargo... Oh. You will actually find a statement that the film was inspired by the Crafts Kates. Did you know that? No. Mm -hmm. Particularly, like, the very end of the film where a character played by Steve Buscemi is killed and his body is put through... A wood chipper. Oh my gosh. I saw the TV show. I didn't realize there was a movie. Yikes. Okay, I do love finding out though when a movie or uh, a book was inspired by true crime events. Me too, like actually inspired yeah. by true, like not just having the sentence in front of a movie or a TV yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, like they, really they tie it in. Yeah. I think you have a few more than me, so why don't you go do yours and then I'll give my next update at the end. Okay, now remember when I said I had more info on what was happening with Richard's job at the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. According to Wikipedia, at the time of Richard's affair, their divorce filings, and eventually Hella's disappearance, the airlines were going through something called deregulation, and it was causing a ton of labor disputes. So after what was described as a crippling strike in 1989, Eastern Airlines actually ran out of money and was liquidated by 1991. Yeah, so I'm guessing this is probably why Richard found time to be a part-time police officer. Just casually. (laughs) Yeah, just casually they threw that out there. So I also learned that he made a lot of money as a pilot. So if I'm trying to put this all together, his job security is unstable. Mm -hmm. He's been cheating on his wife. Mm Mm-hmm. He's never home, and now he's facing a divorce where Hella has evidence of cheating, which means the courts will most likely give her everything she wants. So this all leads to motive, motive, motive. 
I mean, did we, do we know if they had a prenup? Oh, probably not. Were those not a thing back then? I don't, I think it would have been mentioned, but I, I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. And I also did find out from my dad because my dad's chief of police. Yeah. That he, there are actual part-time, part-time. Um, police officer jobs that are only in like counties that don't require a lot of police force. I mean, that kind of, ugh, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but doesn't seem like it should be a part-time gig. No. Right. Part-time gig should be a glamour shot. <laughs> yes. Not a police department. Yes. Okay. So another thing I looked into was the credibility of the blood stain pattern analysis. According to the National Institute of Justice, it has been under scrutiny since a landmark 2009 report which criticized this and other forensic disciplines on the issue of accuracy, reliability, and validity. In one of the first large error rate studies, they found that on average, about 11% of the time, the analysis conclusions were wrong. And apparently, those error rates found in the study are higher than other forensic disciplines. Again, not a scientist. I am simply a messenger. I don't know if you can see my face right now, but like (laughs) 11% is kind of high. Yeah, I would say. In a case that's putting someone away to prison. Yeah, for life. Yeah, it's, it's really high. And what about what happened to Richard and the kids? Yeah, so I found this awesome blog called ForensicFilesNow.com. I'm sure we we'll probably will be citing them a lot as we continue the podcast. So shout out to Rebecca Reisner. She also wrote a Ooh. book, uh, Forensic Files Now, Inside 40 Unforgettable True Crime Cases that I actually just ordered on Audible. Our founding father, Peter Thomas, quickly brushed right over some major points, like the fact that Richard's first trial ended with a hung jury, But in 1989, a second jury found him guilty of murder. And then a few years later, in 1993, this man had the audacity to submit a bid to extract money from Helicraft's estate. But a judge refused it, as they should have. He tried extracting money because I did read he didn't even have enough money by the time his first trial was over. He had used up all his money. Of course so, he did. Yeah. So he had no money to make bail. Thank God. So he was able to, or he was um, kept in prison between the trials, which it's good when the person is guilty, but it's not good when the person is innocent. So I know that's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's a problem. But Hella's amazing friends took in her three children so they could continue going to their school. And some of her colleagues raised money for them by posting signs in stores and on bulletin boards in the airports. Mm. Isn't that sweet? It's like no, pre GoFundMe. Oh my god! Literally, it was in the blog. She's Aww. like pre GoFundMe. That's what she wrote. She was like, "This is before GoFundMe, and this is how they raised the funds." Which I just like. That's so creative. Eventually, one of Richard's sisters did take custody of the kids, uh, according to a Connecticut News Times story. The state even made sure that the children received Richard's pension fund. Word. Yeah, Word. this shocked me because I don't think anything like that would happen today in regards to pension funds. But I just hope those kids were able to find some peace and purpose. Like, so does that also mean that he had to pay, like, is that their, like, back then the version of child support? No, no. Um, I don't really understand pension funds because pension funds are kind of uh, not part of our life anymore. Yeah. So I don't truly understand that. I know he paid into it with his paychecks. So there was probably, like, a, a pot of money mm-hmm. that he could have gotten paid out. So there might have been a petition through the courts to give it to the kids to get it to give it to the kids yeah, which so i should. they should yeah. but that i i doubt anything like that happens anymore yeah. but um according to newstime.com 
I learned about Diane Anderson. We love love Diane. Miss Diane. Love Miss Diane. Don't love what how she danced around domestic violence. Yep, don't, but don't love that. Don't love that. But listen to this. Diane Anderson was the first woman to practice law in her city, Danbury, Connecticut. I mean, let's give it up for Connecticut a little bit because I feel like they were doing a lot of the right things at this time. Yes, probably not all the time, but in this moment, not all the time, but in this, in this moment, moment for we're gonna the kids yeah. <laughs> and for Diane. Yeah. She was also nicknamed the Barracuda. I do not <laughs> have any problem giving her that name because that is what she kind of reminds me of. Yeah, Barracuda. Yeah. Good for Diane. She lived a very purposeful and meaningful life. She did pass away in 2012 at the age of 79 and is remembered by her friends and colleagues as a brilliant attorney who did everything she could for her clients. Give it up for Diane. Yeah, Give seriously. Give it up for Diane. However, my last update is a bit of a downer. Oh my God. I know. I'm so sorry to say P.I. Keith Mayo mm-hmm. died in a car accident in 1999 in Florida. Oh, no. Yeah, he really just seemed like a guy who, for that time, was like really an ally. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and he was only 46. So it That's just, terrible. yeah, it just makes me sad that like the world didn't have more Keith Mayo time. I know. Hopefully he was a good guy. I mean, I didn't find anything else about him. So now you have an update on Richard Crafts today, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. Richard Crafts was actually supposed to be eligible for parole in 2022, but on January 30th, 2020, he was released from prison early because of statutory good time, which allows sentences to be shortened for good behavior or participating in certain programs or services, which I am totally for in in, those facilities, but I don't think that that should weigh in on letting someone be released from prison. Yeah, I think it's hard to make that I know, call. I know. You know, it's hard to believe someone like this is just But then this falls history. in line with like the people that were wrongfully accused. Yeah, absolutely. So like it's a double edged sword. Yeah. He was released from prison into a Bridgeport halfway house, then to a shelter for homeless veterans also in Bridgeport. August twenty twenty he became uh completely free. So he's just out there. He's just out there. Richard, if I see you if I see you <laughs> So he's just out there? He's just out there. Like, could you imagine just seeing an old man doing something sweet, like picking up a kid's teddy bear and handing it back to them, and you're like, aw, what a sweet old man. And then you find out it's fucking Dick Crafts. God, now every old man I see, I will wonder if it's Dick Crafts. Oh, you shouldn't have put that thought in my head because now I'm going to think that. You've ruined sweet old men for me now. Okay, before we wrap up, we would like everyone to be aware of these cases. Yes. From the Black and Missing Foundation's website are the cases of Erica Elmore and Michaela Howard Green, who were last seen by a family member in the 16,000 block of Helen at 7.30 a.m. September 14th, 2013. Erica, who was 16 at the time of their disappearance, should now be 26. And Michaela, who was 14 at the time of their disappearance, should now be 24. Erica is described as being 5 feet 3 inches tall and 160 pounds with brown and blonde hair and brown eyes. She has a tattoo of the initials DB on the right side of her stomach. Michaela is 5 feet 4 inches tall and 140 pounds with brown and blonde hair and hazel eyes. Anyone with information about the teen's whereabouts is asked to contact the Detroit Police Department's Criminal Investigations Unit at 313-596-5240. And you can also submit the information to the Black and Missing Foundation's tip line at blackandmissinginc.com slash tipline. From the Bureau of Indian Affairs.gov website is the case of Kendra Nicole Botello. Kendra went missing on July 5th, 2022 and was last seen in Enid, Oklahoma. 
the Enid Police Department and BIA OJS Missing and Murdered Unit is seeking your assistance for any information regarding the whereabouts of Kendra Nicole Patello. Her hair is black. She has hazel eyes. She is 5'8", 115 pounds. Her race is listed as American Indian or Alaska Native, and federally recognized tribe is listed as Muscogee Creek Nation. To submit case information or tips, you can do so one of three ways. Text BIAMMU and your tip to 847-411. Call in tips to 1-833-560-2065 or email OJS underscore MMU at BIA.gov. We will also post the case information on our Instagram at Forensic Files Podcast and our Facebook, the Forensic Files Duo Discussion Group. But first, please go and follow at Black and Missing Foundation and at MMI Who Is Missing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. But guess what, Drew? What? I have one thing you have no. not. No, I thought that was no, it. I have one more thing. But listen, this is crazy. I was not going to include it, but I have to include it. Harry Burnett Reese was an American inventor and businessman known for creating the number one selling candy brand in the United States, <gasps> Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And he is not related to Drew. <laughs> Fuck off, Danielle. <laughs> I am putting I it out there. I need to make friends. Listen, I need to course correct all those people I told for months. We have the same last name. <laughs> <laughs> do your 23 and Yes, I did make my mom go to CVS and buy Reese's Peanut Butter Cups <laughs> so I could hand them out as presents. Okay, now look, I had every intention of ending the episode on that note, but I need you to take a moment here. Do you believe in numerology? I'm sorry, what? Numerology. Do you believe in it? Like the numbers? Yeah, like weird numbers. <laughs> like the numbers. <laughs> like one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> yes, numbers. But like, but like astrology, you have numerology. Do you oh. believe in numerology? Like, oh, there's like all these weird dates. Like, remember, I'm. My mom's oh, third child. Oh, like when child. you see 333. Yeah, like I'm my mom's third child born on her 33rd birthday at 3.33 a.m. Or 3, when it's the witching hour yeah. at 3 a.m. Or 11.11, like yes, those things. Yes, you yes, believe I in do, that I stuff. Do, okay. Do. All right. Look, buckle up. I have so many notes about weird dates. Mm -hmm. I tried hard to avoid talking about this, but once I saw the fourth weird date pop up, I was like, we got to talk about this. Mm -hmm. The first episode of Forensic Files aired on April 23rd. My wedding anniversary is April 23rd. Richard Crafts was convicted on November 21st. My husband's birthday is on November 21st. While researching the peanut butter cup inventor, I saw that he died on May 16th. My mom and I's birthday is May 16th, and he died the day she was actually born. But it was this last realization that convinced me to bring it up here. Listen, I was finishing up my notes last night on November 18th. Hella Crafts was last seen alive on November 18th. I'm done. Wait. No. 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 Nope. <laughs> I call it quits. Considering the I like to put my two weeks in, please. <laughs> two weeks. I like to. I would like to quit. This is weird. Considering the time it took Hella to put the kids to bed, and the fact that the nanny wasn't home until two a.m., it's possible Hella was murdered on November nineteenth. Today is November nineteenth. I know. I legitimately got emotional. Thirty-six years later, to the day, we are starting a podcast on the anniversary of her death. Okay, I uh, I don't have words either. I don't know how to feel. I know, and I know you're like all this paranormal like, stuff I is your vibe. Feel, first of all, let me say if there's a reason for this, thank you, Helicrafts. Thank and you, Helicrafts. I hope, hope you're resting in peace. 
even though your departure was not pleasant. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what? All right? those dates. I genuinely I don't want... know if I want to be friends with you anymore. What? <laughs> like, this is weird. This is how we break up after all of 20 years? Well, you are giving me facts. You are giving me facts. And, like, that is yeah, a lot of I similarities. I know. It and is weird. A, it seems a lot of doomsday stuff. <laughs> In your direction, not mine. <laughs> That's true. I've had enough. I'm going to say a prayer for you tonight. Please do. Please, everybody do. Wait. Did we, like, actually just do this? We actually did this. Let's cheer. Oh, you drank all yours. Take some of mine. Oh, you got some. My grandpa's cocktails are great. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Oh, my God. We did it. I am shaky. I am weak. I am sweaty. I learned a lot of words. Follow us on social media. Yes. Follow us on all the social needs. Um, we are on all of them. Forensic Files Podcast. Yeah. Keep it simple. On Facebook, it's the Forensic Files Duo. This is so much fun. I love you. I oh love doing gosh. this with you. I don't know if I love it, but I, okay. uh, I'm, I think I'll grow to love it. Yes. I love this time with you. Yes. Though. Yeah. It's really great. I'm okay. glad we're back to you. Until the next one. Bye. Nice smooches. <laughs>